Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. Guys, we are in week two of a series that we began last week. It's called Beyond This World. It's a series designed to help us think beyond this world. How many of you know that there is a life that comes after this one? Then how foolish would it be to live exclusively for the one that's going to end in, I don't know, 80 years or something, you know? We've got eternity to think about, right? Guys, come on. You've had, look, look, I said this to the 11 o'clock last week, but I'll extend it to you. You've had your time to have your coffee. Uh, Did you you come ready and awake today? Okay, I believe that 50% of the room is awake. Now, the thing about my message today is that you will need to use your brains. You will need to think. I'm going to say a lot of things, so I want you to switch on. Are you switched on? All right, that's good. I'm feeling it. All right. So how many of you would know that when we became Christians, what happened is that we didn't just graft Jesus into our life as an added extra. What did we do? We change our life around Him. So if you're just trying to find, this thing's annoying me. Get out of here. It's just in the way. It's just in the way. I need some space today. We change our lives based around that one decision to follow Jesus. And if you're not a Jesus follower, I totally get it. But we don't graft Jesus in. We shift our lives. We change. In fact, when we became Christians, what did we receive? We received new values. And our job as Christians is to align our lives with the values of the kingdom of God. So what do we do? Well, we look at the things that are important to God. We look at the things that are important to Jesus, what's written about in His Word. And then what do we do? Well, we say, well, wherever my life is out of alignment, I'm going to bring it into alignment. We're not here changing Him. He's here changing us, right? Okay, so one of the things that matters to Jesus is what we do with our wealth, how we manage it. Nearly half of Jesus' parables were all about money and what we do with it. So, you know, I know this is church. I know that we talk about spiritual things here. Yeah? 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 Okay. So why are we talking about this? What about financial things like wealth? What are you talking about? Well, I think that managing our wealth is a spiritual thing. It's called stewardship. And one of the things that we understand about God is that He cares so much about what we do with our wealth, like probably more than most people appreciate, more than most people think. So we really got to wrap our minds around this. Now, what did we learn last week? One of the things that we learned, and if you didn't catch last week's message, you need to go back and watch it, uh, but don't leave, like stay. But then when you leave today, go home and watch it. And if you watched it, you would understand that we are held eternally responsible for what we do with our temporal wealth. Now, if God is real, yeah? Okay, if God is real and we are responsible eternally for what we do with our temporal wealth, then we should be wise about what we do with it, with how we manage it, correct? Okay, well, the the natural follow-up to understanding that we're accountable for it, the natural follow-up to that would be, okay, we are accountable, what does God expect of us? That's the natural thing. 
Okay, so we know that he expects something. The, the natural follow-up to that would be, what does God expect from us? Have you ever gone for a job and then the job that you were going for, you got, but when you started doing it, it wasn't the job that you thought you were getting? Yeah, like, if you've, has anyone done ministry before? Like, <laughs> you know, you're like, you, you say, yeah, I, I was just helping, right? And then it's like, you started helping and then that became your job or you just started to take on extra responsibilities and now you're doing things that you, you, you never signed up for. Well, I know that it happens in, in ministry. I, I used to work in recruitment. One of the things that we had were position descriptions. It's so important to have a position description when you're going to go be an employee of another company. What are you doing? You're finding out exactly what they want from you, Correct. You're finding out exactly what they want from you. So what you do is you say, well, what do you want from me? Do I have the skill set to match? Do I want to do this job? And, and how much are you going to pay me? And how's this all going to work? And then you sign a what? A contract, don't you? You sign a contract. And it's important to know the expectations when you enter into a contract, right? What if I told you that God does all of his relationships via contract? <laughs> we wouldn't say contract we'd say covenant what's a covenant well if you're new to church i explain this often but if you're new to bright church let me explain it for a minute a covenant is an agreement between a superior and an inferior marriage is a great example of a covenant between two people and god they used to call it the cutting of a covenant because when a covenant would be made or ratified, what they would do is they would get the pieces of an animal, or the, sorry, they'd get an animal, cut it in half, and they'd lay the pieces opposite each other. The inferior person in that covenant agreement would pass through the pieces, and then they would make their declaration as they enter into that covenant agreement. Why'd they pass through the pieces? Great question. They are essentially saying that if I break my covenant agreement, if I break my covenant agreement, what's happened to these animals, may this happen to me. May I be cut in half. May I be torn in half. I think we would just acknowledge that if you're going to enter into a covenant, it's pretty serious, right? All right, so, so it sounds really serious because it is really serious. But guys, guess what? This is good news. Why? Well, because the Bible says that in God, there's no shadow, there's no variation. What that means is that God's character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that allows us to develop great expectations about how God will interact with us. So what we're not doing is wondering if God's having an off day when we offer up some prayers. Are you okay to approach today? Is it a bad day? Have people not been spending enough time with you? Come on, like, I don't want to approach you if you're angry. Just want to make sure that you're in a good mood. Have you ever had a boss before you ask for a pay rise? Get them a coffee? I don't know. Like, get them in a good mood and then go to them. Guess what, everybody? I don't know what your image of God is. He's always in a good mood, all right? So... We know what to expect from our relationship with God. Now, what should we expect we get from God? Well, we should expect good things if we are in a relationship with God. And how do we do that? Well, it comes through covenant. Covenant with who? Covenant with God through Jesus Christ. So let me allow myself to explain the gospel to you very briefly. We believe that as Christian people, we are not saved in our relationship with God through our good behavior and our best efforts because we will fail all the time. Yeah. Even if you had a crack a week, and I trust me, you didn't, but even if you think you did, you made some mistakes 
and you're still accountable for those things that you did. Our relationship with God does not rest on the fact that we are really, really good. If you ask people that have no idea about Christianity, how do you get to heaven? What will they say? I think I'm a pretty good person. And then you tell them, number one, you're not. It's only by your standard, but you will only be judged by God's perfect standard. So number one, you're not, right? But even you would have to admit that there have been mistakes that you've made in your life. So we all know that. We all understand that. So as Christian people, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus's work on the cross. Okay, makes sense, right? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I'm glad like four people are excited about their salvation today. All right, but I, I, I tell you, it's good news. The, the covenants are so important. They're kind of divided in your Bible. You have an Old Testament, you have a New Testament. We could almost interchange those words, Testament, with covenant, okay? We have Old Covenant, which is works-based. God, we're so good, let us try. New Covenant, God, we understand that we are not going to make it on our own. We need Jesus. That's why we have Jesus. So your Bible will have writing all the way through, but then a blank page when it divides between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Why? Well, we're just hoping that you catch that part. We want to make sure that you understand there is a big difference between relying on God's goodness through Jesus Christ and relying on our own goodness through our own energy and efforts. So this is what God has done for us. That's what He does for us. Next question, what do we do when it comes to our relationship with Him? If we're saved by grace, doesn't that just mean that we can live our lives however we want? Uh, 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 no, wrong. That's not how that works. What does the Scripture say? Bear fruit in keeping with? Thank you, the leadership team who understand their Bible. <laughs> Yeah, guys, give yourself a high five. Yeah, 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 well done. That was awkward. Um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? It means that we are changing our lives and bringing them into alignment. Yes with what God has asked of us to do. So that's what we're supposed to do. Now, if you're here today in church and you're new and this is your first time in church, I'm so glad that you're here because you're going to learn some pretty good things, but you're totally off the hook, all right? Because I don't expect anybody who doesn't believe what I believe to behave how I behave. The first and most important thing is understanding your relationship with God. So you're off the hook for a lot of stuff with today. But if you're a believer in Jesus, everything that I'm about to talk about, this applies to you. Can I give you a quick history lesson on how the people of God worked with their wealth? Okay, good. I was doing it anyway because I've prepared for it. So thank you, Pastor Matt, for giving me permission this morning to do that. In the Old Testament, they would do something called a tithe. A tithe literally means 10%. That's what a tithe is, 10%. 10% of what? Good question. 10% of, under the law, the produce of the Holy Land. This is the promised land. This is the land that God had given to them. So 10% of your harvest, 10% of your grain, 10% of your fruits, 10% of your goods. Then what would happen is they would harvest their property or, you know, so you take someone that's a landowner, they harvest, they bring in the harvest and they take the best first 10% and you've got 11 tribes that all give that tithe to the tribe of the Levites, the Levitical priests, they would give that tithe to them. And then the tribe of Levites would tithe 10% of that, giving that to the Levitical priests so that they would be able to focus 
full-time, and they actually rotated them through, so they weren't doing it all the time, but they would rotate them through so they could focus full-time on the theocracy that was Israel. It wasn't a democracy, it was a theocracy. This is how it worked. And they made sure that they had, the priests were being supported so that they could focus full-time on that. That's how the tithe worked. Now, the thing about this is that they had to do it. Everyone say had to. They had to do it. They had to do it. No choice. This is what you do. What's interesting is that God said to Israel in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and new spirit I will put within you. He said, I will remove the heart of stone. What's that? The heart of law, the heart of commandment, the law, uh, the heart of have to obey. I'll remove that from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's a soft heart towards God, a soft heart towards what He wants to do. In other words, what God was saying is, when I put a new spirit in you, you will move away from have to and suddenly you will want to. You got ahead of me. I love it. You will want to. But who cares? Because at this point in Israel's history, they have to, right? So they just have to. They had to do it. Here are four strange but interesting facts about tithing. Number one, there wasn't one tithe. There were three tithes. The first tithe was the tithe that we often talk about in church, the tithe that you often will hear about in church if you've been in church. Then they had the festival tithe and they had the poor tithe. The poor tithe was 3.3%. And they would add it up. So every three years, they would bring in the full tithe. Weird, I know, but it's how they did it. It was essentially their welfare system to look after people that needed help. Number two, the poor didn't tithe. The poor didn't tithe. In fact, when people that were landowners would harvest their property, they didn't even harvest the entire amount. Do you know what they did? They left a margin. It's good to have some margin. (laughs) They left the fringes of their property and they left that so that the poor could come and glean, that is to take from the fringes of the property. So this is interesting because if you think about it, 100% of what they had, they didn't even harvest 100%, but they only tithed on the percentage that they harvested and they left some margin so that the poor could be supported in addition to the 3.3% that I'm talking about. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't you just hate it when you forget a sheaf? (laughs) You shall not go back to get it. If you drop it, don't go back and get it, all right? So it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands, which is a repeated principle that we seem to just see. Old Testament, New Testament, it's the same thing. If you bless others, I'll bless you. Not everything that comes to you is for you. It's meant to pass through you and get to other people. So this is what he's saying. If you do this, I'll bless the work of your hands. You bless them, I'll bless you. Here's a third interesting fact about tithing. Tithing started in the land that God promised to give them and it was to be stopped if they were ever taken out of land. You shall tithe as long as you dwell in the land. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Uh, point number four, when it came to the festival tithe, and to be honest, you don't really need to know this, but I still thought it was interesting. The festival tithe would only be eaten in Jerusalem and you could exchange, now don't get too liberal with this, okay, everybody? I don't know how you would apply this to your own life. But you could exchange money to buy strong drink. 
Some of you have been in church for such a long time, and that's the first time you said, I received that word. <laughs> You're going to stop off at the thirsty camel on the way home. Drive through, it's biblical. You could exchange money for strong drink. And someone's going to say, whoa, hang on. Now, I've been in church for a number of years now because the tithe began outside of the law. Remember when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek? So it sits outside the law. So it kind of circumnavigates the law and lands in the New Testament. That's how tithing's supposed to work. That's what I've been taught. Yeah, I, I understand that. If we read the New Testament, even Hebrews chapter 7 says something interesting about Melchizedek. It says that he was the priest most high. Oh, what does that mean? Well, a couple of things we should probably understand is that the title priest most high was a common title even among pagan nations. So even amongst the pagans, they would say, yeah, priest of God most high, God most high. But they just talked about different gods. So that's, that's interesting. And it's almost if we could figure out who this Melchizedek guy is, then the rest of it kind of is going to start to, to make sense. So... So what, what was that thing that happened with Abraham? Why did he give the 10% to Melchizedek? Why does Paul, most likely Paul, the author of Hebrews, talk about it in Hebrews? What's this all about? Great, great questions again. Um, let me just explain a couple of things. Back in Abraham's day, if you would go to war in the land of another king, if you were, if you were to go to war and fight against people on their land, you would tithe 10% of the spoils of war. You would tithe 10% to the king who presided over that land. And that wasn't necessarily income. That was the spoils of war. I guess, I don't know why. Maybe it was just like, come on, we've got to look at all this mess you've made. We've got to have to clean this thing up. So, so you would tithe to the, to the king of the land. And that's, that's interesting I and mean, maybe not compelling enough, but... If we were just, just to look inside the text and just look at what the scriptures directly say, there are some interesting things here. Like, for example, you know, when, we, when they say Melchizedek is the priest most high. Oh, and do you remember what it said also about Melchizedek is that, um, you know, he's without genealogy, without father and, and mother. <gasps> what does that mean? Was that Jesus in the Old Testament? Does that mean that Jesus existed back then? That was the first time he came and, and, and the second time he came as Jesus? No, no, no. No, that's not what that's saying at all. If he was Jesus, if he was truly that, that king and priest most high, that herald of righteousness, you should know a couple things about the war that Abraham fought in. When Abraham went to war, he fought alongside another king, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom acted as proxy for Melchizedek. Why would the king and herald of righteousness, if he represented God and his values, have as proxy the king of Sodom, when a few chapters later, God would wipe out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so morally backwards. Oh, now that's interesting. Now that makes sense. I don't think that God would have the king of Sodom represent him. So when the scriptures begin to talk about this and they say, he's without genealogy, was it Jesus? No. Then why did he even say that stuff? Well, they said it because what we're looking at here with Melchizedek in the New Testament is something we call typology. 
And it's a way of explaining to people something that they're trying to learn. Who's writing the letter? Paul, who's he writing it to? The Hebrews. What's he trying to explain to the Hebrews? He's explaining to them that everywhere where Melchizedek was an illegitimate priest and king, Jesus is legitimate. He's the opposite of Melchizedek. See, even to be a priest, they had to be able to trace your genealogy. So who your parents were, they'd have to trace it all the way back. The moment that if there was a broken record and we're like, well, we don't even know where your mum and dad came from, you cannot be a priest. So do you get why they're saying, oh, well, we, without father or mother, they're like, all that means is we don't know who his parents are. That means he's an illegitimate priest. And he says, King Mo, a prophet and a priest and, and, and King Most High, yet the person that represents him in that battle is the king of Sodom, if you understand really what that's all about, is it saying that everywhere that Melchizedek was illegitimate, Jesus is legitimate. He's explaining it to Hebrew people, which is why he goes into so much detail. With all of that in mind, could we then, now knowing that, say that the 10%, which wasn't income but spoils of war, could we really say that we would transfer that tithe principle that sits you know, outside the law straight into the New Testament? I, 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 I don't think so. So what does God expect of us? What does the New Testament say? Again, great question. What's interesting is when you open your Bible, let's say you flick to that blank page and you begin in the New Testament, have you noticed something interesting? Of course you have. That the New Testament kind of begins in the Old Testament. Yeah, because it was Jesus' death on the cross that inaugurated the new covenant, right? Yeah. So when Jesus was born, he was born under the law. But when he was born, he did not abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. When was it fulfilled? Okay, so it was fulfilled then. So the new covenant, we do this every time you take communion and we talk about the spilling of his blood inaugurating the new covenant. It's like we all understand that that's when it began. So the New Testament begins at the beginning of Jesus's life. Yes, but it still starts under the law. And it's in those gospels that we see the transition from the old covenant, which represents all the covenant agreements that were works-based into the new covenant that we have with Jesus. Now, I told you at the beginning of this message, I was going to make you think, how are you guys doing? <laughs> it's very quiet, but I just assume that you're just absorbing the things that I'm saying. I tell myself that to comfort myself, okay? So it was interesting during Jesus' life because he actually did change some things, like ceremonial things, like, you know, the washing of cups and plates and bowls, you know, and, and, and the Pharisees were always offended by that. So he did change some things. But when Jesus was alive, tithing was a thing. So in Jesus' life, did he ever speak about tithing? Yes, three times. And what did he say? Ah, well, interesting. Jesus was, when he talks about tithing, he's actually in the middle of the woes. Woe to you, woe to you. Do you know who's copying a lot of the woes? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were copying a lot of the woes and specifically around this stuff, when he speaks about tithing, they're copying the woes because he's saying to them, you guys are so anal retentive about tithing. You tithe out of your spice rack. But if we go back to the law and look at what was required of you, it never says a thing about that. So where did it become so extreme? 
between what God said in Deuteronomy and what we see the Pharisees doing at the beginning of the New Testament. Like what, what changed for them? Well, they had essentially commentaries on the Scriptures. So when I read the Bible, if I want to understand it, I can read a commentary, which is where somebody goes into great deal and researches the passages and then explains them. Well, they had the, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud and they would read those things, which were commentaries on the Old Testament. And what did they do? They built on the existing word and got so extreme. And Jesus is saying, you guys, the context of his conversation about tithing is you guys are so extreme. You tithe your spice rack, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice, like how are you treating orphans and widows? and your own parents, what's wrong with you? So he's really kind of getting stuck into them. After the cross, after the cross, how many times is the word tithe mentioned in the Bible? Zero, except for when Paul is writing about Melchizedek and using that to explain to the Hebrews who Jesus really is. It's the only time that it's mentioned. Now, you would think with all of Paul's church planting ability and finesse and his writing skills that he would have mentioned tithing to at least one church. Like, honestly, don't you think that he would have mentioned it? Like, guys, he goes into a lot of detail. He writes about a lot of things. You'd think that if it came to this, if it was that important, he would have said it at least once. No, he doesn't. Not one time. So me, I go, all right, I know God wants me to give. That much is clear. I'm eternally accountable for the use of my temporal possessions. I know God wants me to give. The question is, what does he actually expect from me? What, what is he expecting from me? I know he wants me to give. What does he expect from me? Now, just to give you a little bit of background, when I grew up going to church, I would get pocket money from my parents and they would always make sure I had it in currency that was broken down so I could put a coin in. So I just grew up tithing. And then I went away from God for a really long time, wanted nothing to do with him. And I came back to have a relationship with God when I was 21 years old. Now, this is where it gets weird. I'm 21 years old, my life is a mess, but the thing that I got right, tithing. <laughs> yeah, like I was a slow learner, so it's like a long time before I, my heart would really get around to the things of God. But when I walked in and they said, oh yeah, and we tithe, we take up 10%, I'm like, oh, I remember this, here you go. It didn't bother me, which is weird, because for a lot of people, for a lot of people, they can just come to church week after week and never give a cent. They ignore every giving message. They assume that someone next to them is taking care of it, making sure that everything runs so that they can come in and just receive every week. They love that other people do it. And when we get to that part, they go, it's not for me. Just shut down, heart closes down. They don't do it, which is, which is weird. I was the opposite. I was like, get my life right, I don't know. But you want my money, all yours. <laughs> That's weird. But I, I did that. That's how I did it. So, so then I became a pastor. And then it became my responsibility to teach it. 
And the Bible says that if you're a teacher, you'll be held to double account. Yeah, well, that's pretty serious for me, guys. So I started to think, all right, what do I really think about this? And I started to look into it. And I didn't do this very well because I had this sneaking suspicion for myself, my own personal conviction, that this 10% thing was actually something that, that, was, that didn't belong in the New Testament. But it took me a while to really research it and figure it out. So to my discredit, I didn't teach on this for years. Because I'm, just so you know, I hope you guys know me, I am going to live out of the conviction of my heart. All right, so I'm not here to muck around. I, I, and I can't say something if I don't really believe it. So I just couldn't stomach it. I said, well, I'm not going to teach until I believe it. So every time we get to like a giving message, I'd be like, I'll just tell you what I do and hope that you follow my example, right? And what did I do? I tithed 10%. Why? Because actually uh, above that, but why? Oh, I just thought it was a good starting point. So I was like, yeah, but I didn't really teach it, you know? Because I, I kind of looked at it and I thought, I'm not sure if this is the New Testament model. So a couple of years ago, I came out of the giving closet. Don't you judge me. Put away your judging eyes. I came out of the giving closet because I looked at the New Testament church and I realized they never asked anyone to give 10%. What they did instead was give way over it. Now, you can't have your cake and eat it. When I looked at this, I went, just look at them. Seriously. Just read the Bible. If, we, if aliens descended on this planet and we said, read this and tell us all your thoughts about how the New Testament church organized their giving, they'd come back and say, well, we have no uh, church context, of course, but what we read is extravagant generosity. How much, Percentage-wise, how much would you say, Mr. Alien, that they gave? They gave way over 10%, like way, way way over 10%. And this isn't just a few passages in the New Testament. It's throughout it. It's the early church. Read about the Macedonians, the Corinthians with a little help from Paul, but they still got there. And what did they do? They gave extravagantly. We just see it over and over again. What's the New Testament model? Let me read something to you. Acts 4, 34 to 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and they bought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What happened there? Extravagant generosity, like on a, on a ridiculous level. Why did they do that? How did that happen? Because God had fulfilled everything he said in Ezekiel when he said, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. What, what happened? What happened? They had a new spirit. The heart of stone have to has been taken out. The heart of flesh want to has been put in. And when somebody has removed a heart of stone and they've received a heart of flesh, what do we see when it comes to giving and and, and how they give, it's extravagant generosity. Here's the first thing you need to know about 
the New Testament and how the New Testament church gave. They gave from the heart. They gave from the heart. Okay, what does God expect from us? The same thing. He expects us to give from the heart. We're meant to give from the heart. And if we look at the gospel and realize the significance and the magnitude of how amazing the gospel really is, and the gospel really matters to you, if you've actually had an encounter with God, if you actually put your faith and trust in Him for salvation, if you actually realize that there is a world after this world and money hasn't got your heart, you too will become like these people. The Old Testament church or the Old Testament tithe was 10%. Now, evidently you can do that with a stone heart. <laughs> yeah? Oh, it's so quiet today. Evidently, you can do that with a stone heart. In the New Testament, what's 10%? The, I don't know, the basement? The first floor? Yep. Because everything I see is in excess, way above that. What, a, what is that that's happening there? Well, there's a theological term that we have for this. You've heard me say it before. The expulsive power of the new affection. What does it mean? It means that before you were a Christian, you cared about things, values, things that were mattered to you, things that were important to you. And when you received Jesus into your heart, that was so significant that it expelled all the other stuff that was on the throne of your heart. It was like Jesus came in and you kicked off everything else that was on the seat of your heart and Jesus took the throne of your heart. The expulsive power of the new affection, it kicks out all the other stuff and makes room for the things of God, for the things of the kingdom of God. What is God interested in? Your whole heart. What is that? Well, <laughs> like we're talking about giving, sure. But I'll add, it includes your time and your talent. Of course, your treasure, but your time and your talent. Have you ever been in worship and just so caught up in the moment? And you said, God, have it all. Because you were so moved. No, not this week. <laughs> God, have it all. You just get caught up in the moment. And you're so moved by God, you say that. What did you really mean when you went, have it all? Have it all. Have it all except for what? <laughs> Do you divide the sacred and the secular? Do you say, God, have it all except my money? You can have it all. Oh, I know what we mean. Maybe what we mean is, God, have it all. What do you really mean by that? Oh, well, you know, I mean, have my problems, have my anxieties, have my fears, have my worries. You can have all of my sin, but leave me the money. <laughs> it's weird, right? What does God expect from us? Here's the second thing that God expects when it comes to our money. He expects, and this is what the New Testament did, the New Testament church, they planned their giving. They planned it. God expects us to be planned. I've got a, uh, 
I've got house. We've got car payments, school fees, gas bills, water bills, everything. Like I get it. That is exactly why we need to be planned, right? Because if all we ever do is just pay all that stuff first and give God the scraps, we're not going to be able to do it the way that God wants us to do it. So what do we do? We've we, we got to be planned. What does that mean? Get a budget. That's, that's called being a good steward. Know what's coming in. Know what's going out. And when it comes time to give, we give God our best, we give God our first. I think that's a principle in the Old Testament that we can carry through to the New Testament, is that we give to God first and we give Him our best and then we make sure that we've got a budget that aligns with that kind of value. Why? Well, because we're taking on new values. We're shaping our lives around the kingdom of God. I'm not grafting God into a little fraction of my heart so He takes away my sin and I can double down on that come my death. I am actually saying, I give my heart to you. I give my life to you. Have it all, it's yours. What do you want me to do with what I have? How can I advance the kingdom of God. How can I do this? I, I want to do it. See, God is not interested in our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. You know what He wants? Your heart. But if you give Him your heart, what happens next? You give your treasure. Why? Because you're so enamored with the kingdom of God and you care so much about what the church actually accomplishes on planet Earth. Sometimes we can be so small-minded where we're just hoping that the church grows a little bit. You know, I'm talking about the church needs to redeem the world. God needs to work through us. We've got an almighty task that's ahead. We gotta live like that's true. We gotta go after this, guys. And not just live like we're just happy to scrape on by. You know, I think so much of it is like, just as long as we're, we're just doing okay. Do you know the average church in Australia is 80 people and held together by duct tape? It is. Maybe there's a couple wealthy churches around. The average church is 80 people. They're shutting down everywhere. Why? They simply don't have the people and the resource to stay open. We've got to get a vision of something greater than that. We've got to get a vision of a strong church, a thriving church, a church that's actually able to stand up in the culture that we live in, in the generation that we live in and be a beacon of hope to people that need it. And when we're struggling and duct taping it behind the scenes and you know, piecing everything together and scrimping and you know, when we get like that, it makes it a little bit harder to do what I think the church could have great capacity to do. When we're living for something beyond this world, this is how we live. This is what we do. We're not, we're, not, we're not thinking about just making it through this life. We're thinking about legacy. We're thinking about what we leave behind. And you know what? If we're really smart and we make the right play, we're not thinking, how am I going to make it through the next 60 years? We're like, how will I spend eternity in the light of what I did with my stuff while I was on earth? Does that make sense? Stand to your feet. I want to pray. 
a really simple prayer. Come on, let's close our eyes. Let's just have a moment with God. Father, we thank You that You're so good towards us. And God, what we wanna do is be generous people. God, today we're not grafting You in. We're not just trying to find some small pocket of our heart that we will release to You. God, we want You to have it all. And when we read Your Scriptures and when we see what we're supposed to do with our wealth and how we're supposed to manage it. Yes, we want to be great stewards, but yes, You've called us to be exceedingly generous. And God, it's not that we have to. The heart of stone is gone. The heart of flesh has come. The heart that is moved by the Spirit and stirred by the Spirit that says, I want what You want, God. I want to see Your kingdom come. I want to see Your will be done. I want to see people give their hearts and lives to You. I want the Gospel to matter. I want it to be advanced on planet Earth. I pray, God, that for every single one of us, that we would be so wrapped up in that, that when it comes to our treasure, we would say, no problem. This has such a special place in my heart. God, it's it's no problem for me. Help us to be great stewards so we're enabled to be generous people. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.